Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the historic Havern Building in downtown Louisville. This show is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Our current broken, fragmented care system costs twice as much as in other developed countries and delivers worse outcomes. Tens of thousands of Americans die unnecessarily each year because they can't access care. Over 100 million Americans carry medical debt, bankrupting thousands and setting families up for evictions, foreclosures, food insecurity, and more bad health incomes, outcomes. That's why we advocate for a national publicly funded nonprofit single payer system. Everybody in, nobody out. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. We also archive our shows, so you can go to forwardradio.org as well to find other shows. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas for our programming and our funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. Doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively are back in the studio, zooming in today's guest. Mike? Yeah, this is Mike, <clears throat> Michael Flynn. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer. Any comments I make uh, represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Uh, Gene, you... Uh, this is Eugene Shockley. I'm from Campbellsville, Kentucky. I'm a retired general surgeon. My views do not represent the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville or Taylor Regional Hospital. Uh, we have a special guest today uh, talk to discuss uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this is a condition usually associated with with war uh, and combat experience uh, and <clears throat> is also um, uh, something that does have some effects in the civilian in the civilian world. Uh, Jess Wright is a professor of uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Louisville. He is the Kolb Endowed Chair of Outpatient Psychiatry and the Director of the UNL uh, Depression Center. Also, he has written a book, a novel about post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're going to hopefully discuss uh, both that condition and and uh, and his uh, his uh, adventures in, in uh, novel writing. Uh, Jess, we appreciate your willingness to uh, come and discuss these issues with us. Uh, thank you very much. Um, as we have done with guests in the past, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make them, and then the conversation will begin. I would ask you to, to uh, uh, as part of your remarks, uh, give a kind of a broad overview or definition 
for our listeners of post-traumatic stress disorder, most of the, our listeners are not medical, and I think that would help them as we get into some of the details uh, uh, later on. So the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It's pretty rare that I'm given the opportunity to talk for as long as I wish to talk, but I'll try to rein it in and just give a few introductory comments on PTSD and then get on to the question and answer. Uh, for my disclaimers, um, I'm a professor at the University of Louisville, as it's been announced previously, and I have a conflict of interest agreement with the University of Louisville regarding software that I've developed for treatment with cognitive behavior therapy which is uh, distributed by MindStreet, Inc. I've also received grants from the National Institute of Health subsidiaries and serve as a consultant for MindStreet and received royalties for my medical books and my novel. I received royalties from Guilford Press, American Psychiatric Publishing, Simon & Schuster, and Spark Press. So let's just talk a bit about PTSD. This is a condition that's the name of it is relatively new, uh, but it's been recognized. We think at least 3,000 years ago, there are tablets, stone tablets found from Mesopotamia that do describe symptoms that are in an eerie way exactly like what we're seeing today with people that have had trauma, particularly traumas in wartime, uh, major disasters, uh, sexual assault. Uh, any kind of violence that's occurred to a person. During the Civil War, uh, this condition was called soldier's heart, which was an interesting description uh, because I suppose they, they thought that uh, there was something wrong with the heart or in, in the emotional part of the heart. In World War I, the term changed to shell shock and many of the soldiers in that war were in the trenches for months on end with shells exploding all around them. So that's perhaps where that term came from. In World War II, it was called combat fatigue. And it wasn't until Vietnam that the, the word PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder was, was coined. This is a condition that's diagnosable by psychiatrists, uh, prim primary care doctors, psychologists, social workers, and other that others that work with people that ha might have this condition. And here are the key features of the disorder. First, there has to be some kind of an exposure to actual or threatened death, uh, serious injury or sexual violence. And then after this, uh, there's a series of repercussions, including intrusions like flashbacks where the, the scene just reappears in your brain in a vivid way. It also occurs in nightmares, in ordinary kind of memories of the event, and getting physically aroused of having tension, uh, fast pulse, heartbeat, nausea, things like that, which are associated with triggers for the event. An example might be uh, you were in a really terrible car crash, and every time you get on the expressway, it reminds you of the uh, crash that you had and your heart starts racing, uh, your stomach clenches, uh, your pupils dilate, you start to sweat. And then that often triggers to you, gee, I'm really in trouble here, something bad's happening. Then there might be a cascade of negative, fearful thoughts. Associated with this whole syndrome is 
a pattern of avoidance, meaning that people who've had such experiences tend to avoid the the reminders of it. If you're if you've been a, a young woman who'd been raped in a college dorm room, uh, it might be very difficult for you ever to go back to the dorm. Um, now you might argue maybe this is a good reaction because it would make you more less likely to get hurt by something in the future. But the problem is that this avoidance appears to perpetuate all the other symptoms of PTSD. And many of the treatments that we'll talk about later target this avoidance in ways that help the person finally overcome their fear of being in situations or being close to triggers that remind them of the traumatic event. There's some other features that happen with many people. Uh, one of them is that uh, they tend to have startle responses that are they're, they're very hyper, very irritable. They can uh, be very vigilant, looking for cues of danger. Uh, sometimes sleep disturbances will go along with that. And then there also there can be an altered mood where people are very depressed or anxious and even have sometimes emotional numbing around the event. So these are the core features of, of PTSD and what a psychiatrist or a primary care doctor would use and trying to determine whether a person actually has this condition or not. There are many people that have had trauma that don't develop PTSD. And one of the questions that might come up uh, is, why do some people get it and why do other people not get it? Which I think we might discuss a bit about that later. Uh, so with this in mind of just sketching out what PTSD is, I thought we'd now turn to some questions. I'd be glad to answer anything that the panel would like to throw at me, or at least I'll try to answer anything the panel would throw at me. All right, Gene, you want to start? Well, I was uh, very impressed by your book that you just recently published called A Stream to Follow. And I was wondering uh, what stimulated you to write this? Was it written for medical personnel or is it written for the public or both? And how did you get interested in writing a fiction book that uh, explains some of the symptoms of PTSD and et cetera? Well, thanks for your kind comments about my book and the question about why I wrote it. And it's it's a it's a bit of a long story, which I won't go into in great detail. But I would mention that my father and my uncle both served in World War Two. And I they had trauma trauma from that condition that uh, in, in that era, most of these men that served and women suffered in silence. That is, they didn't really talk about the trauma at all, and it, but it affected them in many ways uh, with alcohol use, uh, emotional numbing, irritability, and other kinds of uh, things that probably represented some form of PTSD. I know my uncle who flew a fighter plane across the channel from England into France and Germany told me once, uh, by the way, he, he didn't talk about this at all, until he was dying of cancer. And he took me aside one day and, and started the talk. And it went on for a couple hours, really, as he just let all this go. And uh, one of the stories he told me was that every man, every flyer in his uh, tent, and they, they had a tent on top of a concrete base, uh, died except for him. Uh, and so his the level of his trauma must have been huge. And yet he never really said anything about it until he was close to his own death. So I think that that having grown up in a small town with both my 
uncle and my dad, of course, uh, it, 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 it influenced me about what these guys must have suffered. And as I saw them mature and, and, uh, and their lives, their lives were ended. Uh, I think it, uh, there was something in me that wanted to explore this further and to tell a tale that I thought was untold uh, about World War II era vets and how they suffered and how they tried to recover, tried to get past the PTSD. And then I came across a, a book that I'd highly recommend by our actual surgeon during World War II. His name is Brendan Phibbs, P-H-I-B-B-S. And the book is called The Other Side of Time. I thought it was a, I think it is a brilliant book. It's very well written. And it talks about the traumas that surgeons experienced during the war. And that, again, was an untold story. The, at that time, unlike now when surgeons go through an extensive residency and are usually prepared by the time they might be in the military, during World War II, uh, medical students, as soon as they graduated, were put into crash courses on how to be a battlefield surgeon, if you will, where they were put on the front lines, uh, mostly doing triage and and uh, stabilization so that the soldiers could be taken back to the field hospitals that were safer. But these guys uh, saw a lot. Uh, the Germans teed off on their uh, ambulances and the Red Crosses on the top of their battlefield aid stations, almost like target practice. So um, I wove a story that uh, tells the tale of a surgeon that comes back to the United States after the war and tries to rebuild his life, uh, having emotional wounds that are hard to heal. Uh, the flashbacks into the war. Uh, and interestingly, there's sort of a love story in this too. You have to have something like that to catch people's interest. And um, the, at the end, uh, I think it's a reasonably good ending that there's resolution and it shows some of the ways that people can work on recovering from PTSD themselves. Well, Jess, I was <clears throat> I was impressed with your creative talents. Uh, let me let me let me begin, I guess, with kind of very basic question about 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 the post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, uh, is this different things with different people with different events? For example, if if you're um, uh, 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 an infantryman who's been through uh, the sort of trench fighting that 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 went on in World War uh, or one, or even somebody coming back from from the issues in Vietnam, and I can tell you some stories, but we'll do, maybe do that another time, as opposed to uh, someone exposed to sexual violence or someone, as you mentioned earlier, who might've been in an automobile accident. Can, can you kind of take that bit, those bits apart? And, and I, I guess, is it all the same thing or, or do they manifest in different ways in with the different kinds of traumatic events? The symptoms are essentially the same, although the triggers are gonna be different. Like a, a person who came, came back from Vietnam, their triggers might be uh, memories of um, a helicopter going down or a firefight of some kind. Uh, 
Whereas obviously as a person who was a victim of a sexual assault, their triggers would be from that. But the symptoms that I described earlier of, of uh, having hyperarousal, uh, avoidance, and so forth are, are very similar. The, there is evidence that the more severe the trauma, the more likely the person is to get PTSD. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence for studies of wartime PTSD and from other kinds of major conditions. For example, the World Trade Center survivors, there were 70,000 people who were directly exposed to the World Trade Center tragedy. 10% still have PTSD. There were many more closer to the event. Uh, but if you look at the occupants of the World Trade Center, that's people who are actually in the building, 18% now have PTSD, almost double. So being really close to it uh, does affect the frequency of PTSD. Why is it that uh, the ones who do not get PTSD, what, what's different about them than the ones who do? It's it's mostly unknown. There have been some studies that have tried to nail that, nail this down. There may be just inborn resilience, if you will, to PTSD. Uh, but we do know that there's some things that increase the risk of it. And I mentioned previously the severity of the trauma. If it's a serious injury or death of someone close to you, like a child or a parent or a partner or somebody, that increases the risk. Interestingly, uh, human-made disasters are more likely to cause PTSD than natural disasters, but still you can get it from natural disasters. If you have a history of previous trauma, like earlier in your life, that increases the risk. If you have a history of psychiatric illness, it increases the risk. And being female increases the risk. So there are uh, a few things that protect against PTSD. And here are some of them to keep in mind. Uh, and some of these things actually can be used in treatment. Uh, one of them is uh, having good support from your family, friends, from re a religious group, uh, loving relationships, people that are there for you. Um, I was just in a pretty severe bicycle accident just five weeks ago in which I uh, ended up in the ICU for four days. And, it, you know, it was pretty dicey. And I would say that people came from all around as far as supporting my wife and me. Uh, we belong to a church and I sing in a choir and they were all sending me notes and bringing food and things like that. And that seems to help. Um, here's some other things. Uh, one of them is to allow yourself to think about the trauma, to not just try to push it away or deny it. And to, act, to force yourself to be around the people, places and things that are reminders of the trauma. If you, if you block it out, you'd stay away from it, you're more likely to have the trauma and a PTSD, hang on and hang on and hang on. Why and that so other one is recognize that you can experience and handle negative emotions. Even if you feel rough for a while, you're anxious about it, or it causes emotional pain, feel it and experience it, and ultimately it's going to get better. Why are so many uh, military people reluctant to talk about their experience? Uh, for example, my uncle was also in World War II, and he was a P-51 pilot, and uh, flew uh, bomber escorts over Berlin, and uh, he rarely talked about it, but toward the end of his life, he told me a story where he and his wingman shot down a, a jet aircraft that the Germans were developing, and one of the things he said, he always wondered 
what happened to the pilot and, his, and their family and how it affected their family. But, but he, he I, I really uh, took many years to, to get him to talk. Yeah, there, there are probably as many answers as there are people because everyone has their own psychological makeup and their worldview and their values and religious beliefs and and their basic biology. So there's so many differences in this. Uh, but I do think that there's a tendency for people to want to avoid pain. Of course, we do that. We try to avoid things that might scare us or or would be really dangerous. So this avoidance that I talked about is a natural, essentially good response. It just can get hyper. It can get hypertrophy. So it's to the point where it becomes a problem instead of a help. So when that happens, that's that's something that, that really can cause problems. Some of this is shame. Uh, for example, someone who might've had a sexual assault uh, is reticent to talk about it. Maybe, for unknown reasons, they feel somewhat guilty about why it happened. They maybe put themselves in a position they think they shouldn't have. So they castigate themselves. They put themselves down. And that's something that can interfere with people talking about it and getting help. Uh, so there, there are numerous, numerous reasons. I, I would go back to one, I think, in the World War II generation is that there's a, there's a sociocultural thing of, of the men and the women in the war they were supposed to be tough and uh, and just swallow it and not talk about it. And that's been a part of our culture for a long time. And it, you have to wonder, can sometimes that get you in a lot of trouble? Maybe sometimes it's okay. So you're not uh, you know, crying about things all the time. But on the other hand, if you stuff it all down inside you and don't share it with anybody, don't talk about it at all, uh, it's more likely to cause PTSD. I had an ind indirect uh, relative, a brother of, <clears throat> of the wife, <clears throat> who uh, was a grew up a really happy, uh, very pleasant, happy kid. Uh, was drafted, went to Vietnam, and and then initially did really very very well. And was getting got promoted to a you know pretty good sergeant rank. And then got involved in truck convoys to uh, forward operating bases across the Fanrang Pass in the Central Highlands. And uh, he talked with me about this uh, about a year or two after he'd come back, as he was staying with us. And uh, the, the Viet Cong would put uh, um, things in the, in the road. Uh, sometimes there would be pigs and chickens, and sometimes it would be people. And if they stopped the convoys, they got ambushed. And 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 having to go gone through that experience of of having to deal with that and the the way they dealt with it. Um, basically, uh, you know, he, he it was just something he, he just never could get past. He became an alcoholic and and died uh, actually fairly young as a result of that. And uh, uh, you know, and you, you you make the issue about the different personalities. This is the the last personality type that I would have expected to have had that 
but that experience was just so traumatic. Uh, I guess, mm -hmm. I guess this, it is what it is. Yeah, that goes back to the to the severity of the trauma and the and the meaning to the individual who suffers from it. And I suspect that that you talk about your relative or your, the person that you knew who had that experience and the idea that gee, you had to run over somebody in order to avoid being ambushed. What a horrible conflict! And uh, there must have been memories of things that happened there that were that were just terrible, uh, hard to get over. There's, there is some research now using something called virtual reality, which is fascinating, which recreates some of these experiences in wartime. It's being used in the Veterans Administration, a fair amount of research on it. So people are able to be immersed back in, in situations that were, that were very similar, or very close to what they might have experienced in war. I've seen virtual Vietnam. I've seen uh, the virtual Iraq and Afghanistan programs, and they're very realistic. But what happens is a therapist, a clinician, helps guide the patient through this and gives them support, helps them experience it, talk it through, use it as a stimulus for them to grapple with their own memories, their own traumas, and to finally put them to rest. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about treatment. Um, can you give us kind of an overview of, of the, 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 the options and maybe we can get into some of the specifics after we've, we've done that? Yeah, uh, I want to give a quote first, and this comes from probably the most famous and uh, most influential expert on PTSD. His, his name is Bessel van der Kolk, who's written a bestseller on this. And his book is called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And uh, Bessel said, if the problem with PTSD is dissociation, dissociation is where you, you're not linked to the actual event any longer. You, you, you've denied it. You've suppressed it. You're avoiding it. Anyway, if the problem with PTSD is dissociation, the goal of treatment would be association. That is, bringing it back together again. And he says, integrating the cutoff elements of the trauma into the ongoing narrative of life so that the brain can recognize that that was that and this is now. And he and others have done a lot of biological research with brain scans and MRI scans and so forth that have shown that people with PTSD have definite changes in their brain. And if you treat them properly with various treatments we're going to talk about in a while, that these things are reversed. Is this one of the reasons that women who have been sexually assaulted don't uh, report this initially or maybe report it 20 years later? Yeah, well, it's, it's not just women that have had sexual assaults, but all kinds of people, like men, women, and, and increasingly uh, people with alternative uh, sexual orientation, trans, uh, and so forth. Uh, they're high, highly... Uh, likely to be victims of sexual trauma. And there's, again, there's so many reasons why people don't report it. Uh, but if you take sexual trauma, there's, it's so loaded with the sense that, uh, you know, you shouldn't have had that happen to you. If you reveal it, you're, there's going to be retribution. Um, think about the actresses that didn't report the uh, sexual abuse from the famous uh, producer 
uh, in Hollywood. And, uh, but they were trying to develop a career. So they were in a real bind. That was perhaps one of the reasons. Uh, the history of, of women and men not being believed uh, or the prosecution not being successful of uh, family members and others telling them to shut up and don't say anything about it. Uh, so there are, again, multiple reasons for it. Uh, some of it's sociocultural, some of it's individual personality, uh, but it's an extremely common thing. I must say, as a psychiatrist, I've seen a host of people with PTSD, a host of people that have had abuse early in life who've not reported to the authorities. And one of the things we do in treatment is to try to bring it out and talk about it and work through it uh, so that it's not buried so deeply and causing such a great deal of emotional pain. But getting back to the question is, how do you actually treat this? I've mentioned the virtual reality therapy, but the virtual reality is part of what's called exposure therapy or prolonged exposure. And the idea here is that you help the patient break through the pattern of avoidance by in a very humane and kind way, helping them to actually experience the triggers for the trauma. So in the Iraq veteran who had had PTSD, that might be to use virtual reality or some other way of going back over some of the traumatic incidents and trying to talk about them, talk about them, talk about them until they're reintegrated in their brain in a way that they can go on with the rest of their life without all these other symptoms that I mentioned previously. So prolonged expo exposure is the treatment that's used most frequently. Um, I can give you an example of prolonged exposure. Uh, from a patients or many patients I've had. This will be an amalgam note, so I won't identify an actual patient. But let's say a, a, an individual was out on the Waterson uh, and they had a uh, near-death automobile wreck, not their fault. Someone pulled right in front of them, a truck pulled in front of them. They were able to somehow get off the road. Their car was totaled. The airbag went off. Uh, they were hurt, but they, they went to the hospital, but they survived it. And since then, they've had PTSD with nightmares, flashbacks. Uh, they can't drive on expressways, uh, really avoid driving most anywhere except just right around the house, uh, maybe to go to the corner store or to a gas station. But that's about it. Um, so you might imagine, how would you help somebody like that? And with prolonged exposure, you develop a thing called a hierarchy that's uh, driving related events that had different levels of anxiety associated with them. So I'd ask the patient to rate the degree of anxiety on a hundred point scale, whereas a hundred would be the worst that they could ever imagine experiencing and zero would be no anxiety at all. So we get some steps in there with various driving experiences that they might rate currently their ability to drive to the drugstore, which is just two blocks away as a 15, it still causes some anxiety, but it's not that bad. But as they imagine other driving experiences, they might rank driving to the mall at 50. Uh, it's on Shelbyville Road. They might rank uh, driving on a Sunday morning when there's hardly any traffic uh, on the expressway from one exit, an 80. They might rate uh, driving uh, uh, on several exits on a busy time of the day. 100, sometimes they might even do something with 100 plus. 
So you can see where we're going with this, that we would uh, counsel them, uh, work with them, coach them on gradually experiencing this. Some of this can be done in, in imagination, like imagining you're doing it. That helps them prepare for it. And ultimately, they have to do what we call in vivo exposure, where they sequentially gain confidence and security and reduced anxiety by participating in these events. This is all based on uh, theories that came out of a lot of research on animals. And, if, and it was found that in animal research, that if the animal had continued exposure to uh, a trigger, that their, uh, their, their responses of avoiding it uh, were extinguished, that they went away. And this happens with humans. So it's, it might seem like it's a tough thing to do, of having a coach or a therapist who's asking you to do this, but sometimes it can be remarkably effective. So that's uh, prolonged exposure. There are a couple other treatments I just mentioned briefly. Uh, the therapy that I've worked with for many years called cognitive behavior therapy uh, often uses prolonged exposure, but also helps people with the negative thoughts or the self-condemning thoughts that they might have about the situation. So for example, we take somebody with a that had a sexual assault who now is very self-critical, has very low self-esteem uh, associated with the assault. And so in addition to maybe imagining being back in a, in a situation, maybe going to parties or going out uh, to dance or something like this, uh, they might also be doing some cognitive work of trying to find out what kinds of self-condemning thoughts they're having or negative thoughts they're having and helping uh, construct those in a different way to give them give themselves a, a bit of a break here to uh, have more acceptance of themselves. So that would be adding cognitive behavior therapy. And I, this might be going on a little bit, but I'll quickly tell you the other ones. There are four major treatments. The other one is cognitive processing therapy or CPT, very similar to cognitive behavior therapy. But most of the focus here is on reworking the way you think about yourself and the way you think about the situation. Then lastly, there's one that's used a fair amount in Louisville called EMDR or eye movement desensitization. And in this treatment, the therapist has the patient track uh, their fingers, the, the therapist's fingers going in front of their eyes. It's an eye tracking technique. Uh, but the key thing I think really is that doing that the patient is engaged in cognitive reprocessing using some of the same techniques that we've talked about for the other therapies. So all four of these have been shown to be effective in, in randomized controlled trials, very nicely done research. And so there's a host of things that people can try. Do you say? Are medications uh, used at all, or is that an issue in uh, PTSD? This is one of the conditions in psychiatry where medication doesn't seem to have much of a a benefit yeah. and it's still not known really why they don't work. Uh, but there have been research studies on some of the classic antidepressants like Prozac and, and so forth that have, they just have not helped. Uh, there've been a few studies that show that some of the older antidepressants may work sometimes, but um, medicines like uh, Xanax or uh, Clonopin that are, uh, tranquilizers that might cause some risk of dependency, we basically don't use these for PTSD for the most part because they really are not helpful. 
So the 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 uh, story here is all around psychotherapy. Yeah, the, the types I've talked. Yeah, if a patient has a severe depression and or anxiety and PTSD, uh, the do uh, does it help to to treat the depression and anxiety? Yes, thanks for bringing that up, and that's quite true. That for many people with PTSD, they have other problems also. They could have a depression, uh, they could have an anxiety disorder, they could have a substance abuse disorder, substance dependence disorder like uh, alcohol or, or some kind of illicit drug. And so these need to be identified and treated as a part of a comprehensive treatment plan. So your PTSD is less likely to respond unless you treat the other conditions. Now, let me ask a sort of basic or fundamental question about the treatment. Is is this uh, something that can be cured, or is the treatment uh, focused on uh, allowing people to learn to live with the 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 issues, the symptoms of mm -hmm. this uh, set of circumstances? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. It's a great question. Uh, and in psychiatry, we rarely talk about use. We rarely use the word cure. We do talk about remission, meaning that the symptoms essentially go away. Uh, but in psychiatry, uh, there's really nothing like, you know, you give penicillin for pneumonia and you, it's cured. Um, or you give an antibody for urinary tract infection and it's cured. Or a surgeon might uh, cure a condition by taking out a, a, a tumor or whatever. So there, for most people that get PTSD, we're after a substantial reduction in symptoms. We want them to get to the point where this is becoming a minor part of their life uh, and they can function well, they can be around the triggers. They're not haunted by nightmares and, and by flashbacks. And for some, they get to the point where PTSD is really not an issue. Others, I think, still have some mild residual PTSD. Is there a way to uh, try to prevent PTSD. For example, a physician who are dealing with a uh, multiple trauma every day uh, who uh, become uh, kind of distanced from the patient, non-empathetic, uh, mm -hmm. and develop burnout because of all these problems. Right. Well, I, I I'm not sure there's actually a a known prevention, but I think there's some things that could be done if you thought you were highly vulnerable. D during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, healthcare workers were burning out and were having PTSD from seeing the horrible things that they saw. And you'd wonder what could be done to help them. Well, we get back to some of the things that reduce the risk. And one of those is a great deal of social support. So you're not in this by yourself. Uh, that you have good family backing and backing within your work group, ability to discuss the traumas that you're going through without burying them like those people did in World War II with the person that suffered in silence. Uh, treating yourself well, taking time away to for mental health breaks, if you will, wellness breaks, physical breaks, exercise, uh, it, we, I think we talked earlier about having some kind of religious affiliation 
or at least being in some kind of a group where you feel like you belong uh, and you feel cared for. Uh, these are things that can be very helpful. Um, I talk, uh, this is a bit uh, abstract, but I do want to bring up for just a moment the work of Viktor Frankl. Uh, you may be familiar with his work. He was a concentration camp survivor from World War II, was in Auschwitz, and he got out and he was a psychiatrist before he was put in there. Uh, most of his family members, including his wife and mother and father, didn't survive. Uh, he did survive and wrote about that in a book that the Library of Congress talks calls the one of the 10 most influential books ever written. It was called The Man's Search for Meaning. It's a short book, uh, well worth reading. And in that, he talks about having a sense of purpose or meaning in one's life uh, appears to be a protective factor against despair, uh, against some of the spiraling down of emotion and uh, and mood and attitude that can occur when one is in a very adversive, terrible kind of situation. So the, having a sense of purpose isn't often talked about in research with PTSD and other kinds of conditions. Uh, but in my work, uh, I, if I find a person that feels like they're adrift, they, they're looking around and they don't see much meaning in their lives. For me, that's, a, that's, that's an opening for discussion or trying to recapture that or trying to build upon that as a way to improve resilience and in order to fend off and fight some of these demons that we all have. Well, let's put uh, PTSD into the healthcare system in this country. Uh, well, we all know the VA has done a good job uh, managing it. It's done a lot of research on it. Um, where does it fit into uh, our, our uh, uh, healthcare industry, which is more profit-driven than healthcare-driven, uh, with private health insurance, uh, Medicare, Medicaid? Can you kind of give us a sense of you know, are, are all these treatments covered uh, partly, or completely? Uh, where does, if somebody's got it and, and they fit into one of those categories, what, what are they looking at from the standpoint of yeah, well, having well, access here's the, to care? Yeah, here's the good news. The good news is that these treatments are typically covered by insurance. Uh, and there are uh, laws... <laughs> in the country that prevent insurance companies from denying care for psychiatric conditions. They're supposed to be parity. I'm not sure if we always reach parity. But for example, if you come to the University of Louisville Department of Psychiatry or to our depression center there, uh, we take all comers, uh, insurance, uh, whatever, and do our best job to treat. Uh, but here's the bad news that there are so many psychiatrists and social workers and psychologists now that don't accept insurance because their level of reimbursement is not good. And they have to go through all kinds of paperwork and huge costs to file the claims and to get approval. So they've gone essentially off the grid. So if you look around Louisville, there are many more psychiatrists that, uh, than you'd think that if you want to see them, you got to pay straight up without using your insurance. So I see that as a huge problem in mental health delivery in the United States and something that our healthcare system has bred. Uh, we go back 
to the 90s when uh, managed care really came into its full flower and psychiatry. I, I likened it to being in the first wave on D-Day. We were slaughtered, uh, lots of casualties. Uh, reimbursement rates plummeted. Uh, there are huge uh, barriers to getting treatment for people, all kinds of hassles that the doctors were put through to try to get insurance approval. And as a result, the, the field of psychiatry was hurt. Uh, we pulled back lots of inpatient programs closed. Uh, so now you have trouble finding a good inpatient program, particularly for an adolescent. Uh, and so there are lots of problems with delivery of care. Well, again, you're dealing with a healthcare industry that's focused on extracting profit from every every healthcare activity, as opposed to focused on providing care, and that's really it. right. And we're a good example of of a system right. that's not working for mm -hmm. for the purpose that it's supposed to be. Existing. Right. I, I I contrast this system with with the way things are in the UK. And in the UK, there's been a huge infusion of uh, resources into training therapists and how to do CBT or cognitive behavior therapy and prolonged exposure so that there's an army of people that can do it uh, and that they're they're funded by the National Health Service to provide the therapies. In the UK, who yes. does most of that therapy there? The uh, GP or the psychiatrist or psychologist or something. I think I think in almost any country that the GP in this case is going to do very little of the therapy for PTSD. I, I think their role would be to diagnose it properly and to make sure that the person gets the treatment they need. Uh, GPs are typically going to prescribe medications because they don't have the time to do the therapy and often are not trained honestly in how to do these treatments. So they need to refer to somebody that knows what they're doing. So in the UK, uh, some of this might be done by psychiatrists, others by psychologists and uh, social workers and other trained clinicians who know how to do psychologically based therapies. Uh, for example, in rural Kentucky, where I live, uh, there are very few psychiatrists available and the ones who are available are so busy that it's hard for them to take in new patients, particularly mm -hmm. if they're Medicare or Medicaid. Right. Those problems exist throughout the United States. I know my daughter is a primary care physician in Vermont at the University of Vermont. And she tells me that the wait list to see a psychiatrist, particularly a child psychiatrist, is just horrific. So they have lots of problems. Uh, one of the ways they've gotten around that is to hire a social worker for their primary care practice who can who is embedded in the practice and can do lots of the treatment. So that's that's one way around this. That's called uh, collaborative care. Uh, but still, there are issues with the payer system and making sure this is covered. Well, Jess, let's uh, maybe switch uh, topics a little bit. Uh, tell us about, well, uh, I guess initially, why did you decide to write a novel and how long did it take? I mean, I, I've read about two thirds of it and I. And it's just, uh, as, as, again, I, 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 I'm impressed with your creative talent. How, how, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, get a sense in, I've written a lot of scientific, I've just never written mm -hmm. anything like that. Uh, let, just give us an yeah, overview one why, and then how, how long did it take <laughs> you to do that? I think that, that the idea of writing fiction has been in me for quite some time. 
Uh, and early in my career, I needed to focus on my scientific work. I've, through the years, uh, built up my repertoire of how to write scientific articles and, and medical books. I think I have eight medical books now that have been published, including some that are bestsellers. And uh, so I felt pretty secure now in the fact that I had the discipline to sit down and, and work at a at something else. I think at my at point in my life, I was looking for something new to do, something that was stimulating, interesting, uh, a new challenge, uh, something that would keep me going here as I moved toward retirement. I'm working half time now, and I hope to continue to do so for a while. Nice thing about psychiatry is as long as you're you still have your your memory about you and you're cognitively intact, you can practice this for you know quite some time. Uh, so I, I'm still doing it and I, I love it. Uh, but I've had some time off to be able to to work on something new. And as, as part of this, I I began work on the, the first novel, which, which you mentioned, called A Stream to Follow, uh, which, by the way, has, has been an award-winning book, which I've been very pleased to see. It's available on Amazon and other places, and you can get it at Carmichael's here in Louisville if you're in Louisville. Uh, but I began working on that about uh, eight years ago, but it was slow in the beginning. And I realized that I, even though I had a lot of medical writing experience, I didn't have any experience in writing fiction. So I was able to find a coach, almost like a personal trainer. Uh, but this fellow, uh, Will Lavender, is a fantastic guy, uh, teaches writing uh, as a writer himself, a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Will took me under his wing. He's uh, younger than my kids, <laughs> but uh, we've had a great team together. I was able to find a copy editor that works with me. And so I have this this team that I put together that's that uh, looks at what I write and gives me feedback. I do all the writing, uh, but then I got to the point where I had a finished novel and then I had to see if I could find an agent and get it published. And that's a whole other story. It's, it's a tougher road to go than publishing medical stuff. You have to have uh, tough skin in the, in the uh, fiction writing thing. But I, fi I finished another book, which is with my agent now. He just sent it out to some publishers and I have, I'm about halfway through a third book. So it looks like this is going to be something I'm going to uh, sink my teeth into in this stage of my life. So where did you get the ideas from? I mean, you got a love story in there. I, 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 in the, no, it's not personal. I don't, you're probably the last person I'd be. <laughs> I think writing about a love story. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a bit about. I'll tell you an interesting vignette about this is um, <laughs> if, you, if you go back to the, the healing from PTSD, love and loving is a way out of PTSD. And to particularly to be able to talk about it with someone that loves you and you love them. And that's part of this book. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that early on in the book, uh, I wrote some of it in Pennsylvania in my hometown where the book actually takes place and my mother was still alive then. She lived to be a ripe old age of 101 and was in great shape almost to the very end, cognitively intact and so forth. And she was reading some of the early chapters. And she, she said to me once, Jess, you know, you need to have some sex in this book. <laughs> I, I laughed. And I said, well, it's probably right. She said, there's some sex in this book. And I said, well, if I wrote it, would you read it and give me feedback? And she said, well, yeah. And so I wrote a, I wrote three versions of the first sex scene i wrote it like like hot sauce mild medium and hot <laughs> I said, mom where, 
which one would you like to read? And she said, I'll take the mild. So she <laughs> said she thinks this is great. So what ended up in the book is sort of between mild and moderate. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to work out a sex scene and talking with my mother about it. <laughs> well, yeah. so I, I would say that this writing was a growth experience. <laughs> it was very obvious that you're from a small town, maybe also being from a small town, but you you seem to really understand what's going on in small town. Yeah, I, I had that in me. Uh, I don't live in a small town now, but we, we still have a house in that little town called Hollidaysburg, which we inherited from my mother, who just died a couple years ago. Um, so we go back there often, and I do some writing up there. I love being in this small town. I think I'm a small town boy at heart. Now, how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, this one took better part of three years and some revisions. Uh, I'm getting better at it now, or at least I'm quicker. So the last one took me about a year and a half, and the, I'm halfway through a book that's taken me, oh, about nine months or so. So I think maybe a year and a half to two years now to produce a novel. But the first one was uh, more, you know, took a lot longer to figure out what my voice was and how to say things and get feedback on them. Well, since your mother's gone, who's going to help you out with the sex scenes? <laughs> I won't answer that one. <laughs> well, you, you, you talk about the love stories. I've known several people who uh, had love stories in England uh, during World War II. And, uh, and then uh, I was a flight surgeon in, uh, during the Vietnam War. And uh, one of the problems I had is I... Uh, Knew who some of the pilots had girlfriends in the in Europe and Vietnam, and it, mm -hmm. I had to be careful what I said. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The romance in this book is of a English woman, really quite a lovely, beautiful woman, but coming from a different part of society. She is the daughter of a of a member of Parliament and a very wealthy family. And her father really blocks the relationship and she laments it. And it ultimately, they get back together again. They, it, the distance across the pond uh, is surmounted. I have one other question. A lot of these people have somatic illnesses. Uh, how do we deal with that? As a surgeon, we sometimes really get into uh, problems, people with uh, psychiatric problems that have somatic problems. And it's hard for us to make differential uh, diagnoses. Right. Uh, well, a, a really thorough evaluation, a comprehensive assessment and comprehensive treatment plan should include uh, all the conditions the person suffers from. And sometimes it's a little hard to pull them apart. Um, for example, maybe somebody has chronic pain syndrome and has some uh, definite problems with their spine but yet they're depressed and they're suffering a great deal. How much is their depression? How much is their chronic pain? They're probably woven together in a way that's almost inseparable. So one has to look at the whole person and treat it all. Can you, uh, um, we're getting short uh, on time here, Jess. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about uh, this post-traumatic stress disorder and this this time of gun violence, uh, especially in the, the, the with the gun violence that it is that occurs in the adolescent community. 
um, uh, it would seem to me that these young people are more susceptible to that than, you know, I, I know that soldiers went into World War II and in Vietnam were, were you know, usually 18, 19, 20, 22. But we're talking here, 14, mm -hmm. 15, 16 year old kids. So sure. can you kind of give us a sense of how that young age, it, I, I, the susceptibility, uh, getting involved in some of these uh, traumatic events and being shot on right. street corners, waiting for a bus, and those other issues. Well, you put your finger on a huge problem, and that's the ready availability of guns in our culture and the violence that occurs because of them. Uh, I remember working with a resident who was treating someone who had survived a mass shooting and um that was tough going uh we did do prolonged exposure and cognitive behavior therapy with a great deal of success but i think it's rampant you know ptsd very common it's about seven percent of the united states population that's ptsd there's a lot of it out there and there are many other people who don't have ptsd but they've still been traumatized and they have memories of it and it's not a good thing that it happened so that's a real big issue do we have time for me to leave you with a few things that people might do to help themselves? If yes, they think uh, you, you got two minutes, so do it quick. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to leave the, the listeners with some things that they might take away oh, from that, That's great, uh, thank you. Yeah, so according to Barbara Rothbaum and Dr. Vandercook, two of the great uh, experts in this area, here are the things that you can do. First, you should talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. This might be hard to do, but do it and or write about it, write about it, write about it. You can write about it. Talk with family, friends, clergy, professional therapist. Here's the point, wear it out until you've done as much as needed. Also try to put yourself in situations that could trigger memories of trauma and let the tensions wane. In my book, A Stream to Follow, all these things ultimately happen without the person actually going to therapy, but he's able to do this with the help of his family and his love interest. Uh, and then finally, I'd say to avoid the overuse of alcohol and drugs, which can just perpetuate the problem. Uh, listen, Jess, this was great. Thank you very much. Uh, this very interesting program. I've learned a lot. And I think Mark is about ready to do his final uh, shtick and take us out. Dr. Wright, thanks again uh, for folks who want to learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare. You can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Group also has a Facebook page and an Instagram account for single-payer radio. I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening.